trillion dollar mega corporations are a very big deal these days. There are about two or three of these companies that exist in the modern world and they are primarily tech companies that have achieved this status by capitalizing on cutting edge modern technology and probably a bit of optimistic speculation. But there is one corporation that has snaked its way through history that may have very well been the largest company in history. This was a company that laid the foundations for modern multinationals and created systems and procedures and expectations that we take for granted today. Historians, economists and business experts have speculated about the value of this company at the peak of its power and have assessed that adjusting for inflation, it could have been worth 7.9 trillion US dollars, easily making it more valuable than the largest corporations combined today it would make it more valuable than the GDP of every modern nation outside of the United States and China. So what is going on here? How did this company, founded over 400 years ago, achieve such astronomical scale in a time before proper economics even existed? Well, to understand this, you must first understand the Dutch and the creative ways that they pioneered business. The Netherlands around the time of the formation of the Dutch East India Company was actually a Spanish colony. It wasn't a particularly powerful nation in its own right, it didn't really have much in the way of farmland or even a strong navy, which were the key determinants of national power during this time period. What they did have though, was a very active market economy. You see, economics as a discipline wasn't really a thing at this time. That was not to say that economic theories didn't hold true or that there weren't economies, it's just that people weren't really focused on it. The world was ruled by an overarching theory that later became known as mercantilism, which was basically the idea that the world was a zero-sum game and he who controls the gold controls the world. Mercantilism heavily emphasized the importance of exporting more goods than you imported in order to build up more and more gold, and by doing so, limit the ability of other nations to build up their supply of gold. This theory was born out of an era of limitations. If I don't control at least this much farmland, my people will starve and I will be invaded and dethroned. The only way that I can ensure that I stay in power is to hoard wealth and deny it to everybody else. The same was ultimately true for things like trade routes. The Spanish at this time were making lots and lots of money by shipping spices from Asia into Europe, where these commodities were hugely useful for things like preserving meats and, well, adding a bit of flavor to a bland diet. And because this was so profitable, the Spanish were in no hurry to give this up because, well, if they don't profit from these trade routes, then someone else will, and that goes against the idea of mercantilism. Now, the Netherlands at this time was not doing so great based on this whole theory of mercantilism. They were importing far more than they exported because they couldn't really farm that much on account of most of their country being underwater, and the whole Spanish colony thing kind of put a damper on things as well. What they did have was a far more freewheeling business culture. Merchants traded goods from across Europe and the nation was a useful middleman for a lot of the colonial powers to ship their spices to other European nations. The Netherlands was also home to a really ingenious system for funding the epic journeys that were spice runs. You see, sending janky wooden ships of the day halfway across the world 
often through hostile territories, and then loading them up with nutmeg and sailing them back home, was a surprisingly risky procedure. Sure, the powers that be like Spanish royalty could afford it, but they were better off just facilitating this trade and then taxing it. Much less risky that way. Rather, what actually happened was that individuals could invest into these voyages. Now, these voyages were expensive. It required paying for or building a ship and hiring a crew that demanded pretty decent wages because there was a very, very real chance of not actually surviving these voyages. The financial risk of a single voyage was normally too much for a single individual to take on themselves. So what the savvy merchants realized was that they could sell shares in these voyages and then share out the profits if there were any to the group of investors. Curiously enough, at this time, the term stock meant the framework in which a boat was constructed, which could have given rise to the term stock market, with these individuals buying shares in these expedition boats. Now these investments were volatile, like a Bitcoin day trader with ADHD and 100 to 1 leverage would probably tell you to cool it. Many of these small wooden ships sank, many more lost lots of crew members and returned with no spices, and so all of the investors' money was gone. But if the expedition did pay off, investors could easily expect to make four or five times their investment. This stock market was going well on everything, but it was a little bit wild west. There were lots of moving parts, lots of players from the Spanish royal fleet to individual captains and even directors of individual ports. More so, there was lots of uncertainty. I mean, there was nothing to stop a ship's captain raising lots and lots of money to fund an expedition and then just piecing out to England or whatever. What the whole system needed was some good old stability and maybe just a bit of brand value. With the blessing of the Dutch government, a lot of these larger expedition companies came together and formed the United East India Company, which was granted exclusive rights to trade in the goods of the Far East in an attempt to cut out the riffraff of these individual expeditions. The company would, of course, still capitalise on the profit to be had in shipping spices from east to west, but it would control the whole process. It would own the ships and the ports and the plantations, it would employ its own sailors and give people a single entity to invest in, and that had inbuilt diversification. See, no longer would an investor's money be determined by the fortune of a single voyage, but rather by an entire fleet that would be traveling between their own ports and also relying on their own protection. That's right, the Dutch East India Company circumnavigated the need to be beholden to the Spanish by basically forming their own navy, this type of business strategy is called vertical integration, where a single company owns more and more of the product process. Normally companies do this to reduce costs and have more control over the quality of their products throughout the process. What the Dutch East India Company was doing was sort of like what a lot of modern companies are doing today. Take Tesla for example. It is now the most valuable motor company in America, and a big part of its business model is vertical integration. A normal motor car company will get its components from suppliers and then assemble cars in its factories and then distribute these cars to a network of independently operated dealerships and once those cars are sold it can be serviced at a local mechanic and filled up with fuel at a local gas station. Tesla on the other hand is working hard to be its own battery supplier, they have a very incorporated factory system 
and they own their own dealership network. Even beyond that, and for better or for worse, Teslas are almost exclusively serviced at Tesla service centers and are charged at Tesla branded charging ports. This kind of integration is great for Tesla because it lowers their costs by cutting out middlemen and also allows them to control the entire product experience. What vertical integrations gave the Dutch East India Company though was stability and power. Lots and lots of power. The Dutch East India Company was not a purely for-profit nation. Sure, it had investors that wanted to see returns on their investment, but the company operated with the blessing of the Dutch Republic, which was at the time fighting rather desperately for their independence from Spain. The company could turn a profit, but during the time of mercantilism, this would mean that it was denying Spain profit. The company was also allowed warships and to claim colonies and to have a standing military and to wage war and enforce laws. The company did really blur the lines between a government entity and a for-profit corporation. That being said, they did still make profits. At its peak, the Dutch East India Company was appreciating by close to 40% annually, which to anybody that knows the power of compounding is remarkable. And it very, very quickly rose to prominence as the world's most valuable company. It employed over 50,000 people, which even today is very, very respectable. It had over 150 merchant ships and 40 warships. And warships at this time were a huge deal. Fielding 40 warships was like the equivalent of Walmart fielding 10 aircraft carriers while still also turning a profit. But just how valuable was this company? Many people will point to the Dutch East India Company as the single most valuable company in history, but that was not necessarily true. The Dutch East India Company was very, very valuable and very influential in its time, but it was not the most valuable company in history. Companies are really, really hard things to value. We have seen this in our video on the rise of trillion dollar companies last week, but companies that have closed up over 200 years ago are even harder to value. When we are talking about the value of the Dutch East India Company, we will explore it at its peak. It operated through good times and bad times, but its peak at least in terms of valuations was around 1637. Now a figure of around eight trillion US dollars is thrown around a lot by estimating the value of a company like this. At its peak, the market capitalization of the Dutch East India Company was around 78 million Dutch guilders. And this is pretty reputable. But then people just make the leap and say that that was worth about 7 point something trillion US dollars because inflation? Well, no, not really. This is a massive misunderstanding of what inflation is. But let's take this as the most basic type of valuation. And I do warn you, this involves maths. A Dutch guilder in 1637 was exchangeable for around 0.6 grams of gold. 78 million guilder 
would have been exchangeable for 46.8 million grams of gold, or 46,800 kilos, or let's say roughly 47 tons of gold. Now, today, gold is trading for around $51,600 per kilo. 47,000 kilos would cost around $2.4 billion. So, you know, it's still a lot of money, but it's only about 0.03% of that $7.4 trillion figure you got by just extrapolating inflation over 300 years. Now, in fairness, gold was far more scarce in the 17th century than it is today. The World Gold Council estimates that the total supply of mined gold in 2019 was around 190,000 metric tons. In the 1600s, it was estimated around 20,000 metric tons, which means that by adjusting the supply constraints, the company would have been worth around $22 billion, which again, is very impressive, but still puny compared to the trillion dollar figures that we have been led to believe. This misunderstanding comes from what most people misunderstand with inflation. Inflation is the rising price of goods. Now this can occur because goods are getting more expensive, or most often it occurs because the supply of money is higher. Now inflation actually tends to be a sign of a growing economy whose wealth is increasing. The United States, for example, actually targets a 1% to 2% inflation rate. That's happening, that's a good thing. They also hope for around a 2% to 3% annual growth rate. So that growth outpaces the inflation. But the thing is, the 1600s were poor. Assessed by purchasing power parity GDP, the entire world economy's GDP was probably around $81 billion. There just wasn't as much technology to produce as many things, and there wasn't as many people trading in an active economy. We have seen before on this channel that the average citizen of the United States today lives better than the kings of more than 200 years ago, and this is because we live in wealthier times. 200 years from now, I fully expect the people from the 21st century to look like paupers. Maybe the best way to demonstrate this is to look at the book value of the Dutch East India Company. Now again, this is something that we have explored earlier, that basically a book value is looking at the value of the company's assets minus its liabilities. At its peak, the company had around 40 warships, 150 merchant ships, plus around a dozen ports and 100,000 acres of plantations, as well as a large inventory of spices. So that last one is probably the easiest to get rid of. Today, spices are so easy to grow and harvest and ship anywhere in the world that they are practically worth nothing. Nutmeg used to be as valuable as gold. Today, it is used to make your eggnog a little bit more peppy. The value of the entire inventory supply of this company has been made worthless because the rising efficiency of the modern world has reduced prices of spices, which is actually deflation. The same is true for their ships. Sure, at the time, these ships were modern marvels, but they are rinky small wooden tubs that don't even have an engine in the modern world. A shipyard could easily produce this entire fleet for around $10 million in probably half a year based on production price of materials and labor. And that's been extremely generous. The land and gold reserves of the company were noteworthy. And unlike manufactured or agricultural goods like ships and spice respectively, land and gold has actually appreciated in value over the years. But still, based on their portfolio at the height of their power, these would have been valued at around $30 billion. 
which again is being incredibly generous since most of their holdings were in Southeast Asia, in areas that aren't famous for their high property prices. Now book value has its problems as well, but if you were to transplant the Dutch East India Company into the modern day, this effectively would be what it would be worth. $30 billion as an extremely generous figure. But perhaps this is unfair. Perhaps the valuation of $7 trillion was based on how influential the Dutch East India Company was in comparison to the whole world economy. And perhaps they are onto something there. As a share of total world trade, the Dutch East India Company controlled a much, much larger slice of the global pie than any corporation does today. It was just a much, much smaller pie. Like around 970 times smaller. All of this is not to say that the Dutch East India Company was some irrelevant curiosity. It wasn't. It was one of the most influential historical corporations ever. It just actually wasn't that wealthy because it came from a time that was extremely poor. The Dutch East India Company eventually fell to corruption from an increasingly vast collection of underpaid employees and, of course, competition. The Dutch East India Company was a great idea that was replicated with the British East India Company and the French East India Company and, and so on and so on. Oh, and remember that whole mercantilism thing? Well, as soon as the British and French and Spanish could get spices from their own colonies, there was no way that they were going to import it and risk losing their precious, precious piles of gold. The Dutch East India Company is really interesting to explore. Not only because it was a trailblazer for many corporate structures and systems that we see today, but also because if you understand its actual scale correctly, you will realise how wealthy and prosperous our modern world truly is. Hi guys, I hope you enjoyed this video. A huge thank you to our new patrons over on Patreon. As always, your support continues to make this channel possible, guys. So thank you. Otherwise, we will be hosting the Q&A session live streamed on the second channel linked in the video description. If you want to be involved in that, come on over there or participate directly by joining us on our Discord server. If you did enjoy this video, please consider liking and subscribing. Thanks, guys. Bye.